The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, it seems like it's been forever since I have stood in the pulpit and preached. I was out a couple of weeks there with uh, guests guest preachers while I was in uh, COVID prison and busted out and then we shut down for a week so it's been nearly a month since we've been in the gospel of Luke Uh, but yet I know you're great students and you have remembered committed to memory all that we've said up through chapter four of Luke's gospel right I have high expectations and high confidence in you um But just in case this morning you're sleepy and you're slipping a little, I'll remind you where we are in Luke's gospel. We've been trekking with the Lord in the early part of his ministry, and we've seen uh, a couple of times now in the early chapters of Luke's gospel uh, some conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've seen it come on a variety of fronts for a variety of reasons. Uh, But the conflict arises, we've seen on multiple occasions, and will continue to arise on multiple occasions, specifically due to Jesus' activities on the Sabbath day. We've seen thus far, although just in chapter chapter 4, the beginning of it, that Jesus just doesn't play by the religious leaders' rules on the Sabbath. He's got a different understanding of the Sabbath than they do, and he has a different rule book than they do. We've already seen on a particular Sabbath day, he and his disciples are walking and his disciples are picking grain and they're eating it on the Sabbath and they're confronted by the religious leaders because that was a a forbidden activity according to the religious rules. We saw on another occasion that Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, a man with a a withered hand. He, He tells him to stretch out his hand and his hand is healed right in front of the religious leaders, right in their face on a Sabbath and nearly drives them out of their minds in fury. It is Jesus, uh, his, his perspective on the Sabbath and his activities on the Sabbath are the primary cause for escalating hostility. By the time you get to chapter 4, because of this issue alone, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are already plotting to get rid of him somehow. They know they've got to kill him. He's got to be set aside. And so I told you last we talked about this, Jesus in that issue when he, the, the Pharisees confronted him on this issue, though one of the statements he made is he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We didn't have time to go into that statement on that particular day. But I told you what we would do is we would take a Sunday to just sort of do a pullout from Luke chapter 4 and look at the issue of the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? Uh, is the Sabbath something that we should know and be observing today? How does the Sabbath relate to the Lord's Day? Uh, and, and are they the same thing? Uh, are they related? Are they unrelated? What's the difference between the two? And what relevance does any of that hold for us today? So this morning, that's, the, that's what we're going to do. We're going to just take our time to sort of walk through what does the Scripture teach us about the Sabbath? What is it? Uh, where does it show up in the Bible? 
What does the Old Testament have to say about it? What does the New Testament say about it? What is, how does church history speak to the issue? And then how do we put all that together to make some sense of what we as Christians in 2021 should be doing and operating on as far as obedience to the Lord in regard to the Sabbath and the Lord's Day? Does that sound like a good plan for you this morning? You know, buckle up. I've had like three weeks to think about this now. So, you know, you can only imagine. Um, I've got more than what I can say, so I'm going to try and speak fast, probably. And so just listen fast. If you're a furious note taker and uh, that's going to make your pen smoke or something, just set it aside and I'll gladly give you notes or an outline or whatever you'd like uh, from, from this particular message if that would be helpful to you in the future. Don't feel like you need to, to, to keep up. But in particular, the questions that we need to address are the ones you see on the screen. Is the fourth commandment, which is a command to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy, is that still binding on Christians today? Do, are we obligated to obey that commandment? And if so, how does that then relate to what we know is the Lord's day? And if not, then what relevance does that command have in our lives altogether? We're wondering, are we required biblically to observe the Sabbath? Is it sinful for us to not observe the Sabbath? Is today what we're doing, gathering on the Lord's day in this particular place and worshiping, is that a Christian version of the Sabbath? Are we keeping this, the, the fourth commandment by doing what we're doing today? Is today Sunday, the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath? Do the Old Testament rules about the Sabbath, do they apply to believers who worship on the Lord's day? Because there were many rules. If the answer to all of those things is no, then we have to ask the question, what is the relevance of the Sabbath command in the Old Testament? How does it relate to creation? How does it relate to the Lord's Day? Are there some principles in there that we should give heed to and pay attention to and apply to our lives in some particular way? And how should all of that shape how we, how we gather and worship on the Lord's Day? Now, I'm going to give you sort of three buckets that are three perspectives that have sort of shown up that are the primary ways of addressing these issues. I'm going to just give you the answers to the quiz at the beginning, or at least three ways of answering it. And at, by the end, uh, you're going to have to sort it out for yourself. I'm going to give you my clear conviction on the matter, but I hope that the evidence presented this morning will, will convince you as well. But I do want to at least admit to you that good, faithful, believing Christians of different stripes throughout the generations have seen this issue differently. They've seen, come to different conclusions about this. And so, to be fair, uh, that needs to be stated. And uh, so I'm going to give you sort of three ways that, that this has been addressed, or three conclusions that have been drawn by faithful Christians throughout the history of the church. One way that you can observe the evidence that I'm going to present this morning and draw a conclusion is to say, yes, after looking at what the Scripture says, my conviction is that the Sabbath is still binding and it must be observed. That is a conclusion one can draw. The Sabbath is binding still, and it must be observed. Seventh-day Adventists are a modern group that hold that position. There are Seventh-day Baptists as well who worship on Saturday, the Sabbath, who hold that position. So that is one conclusion one can draw. The Sabbath is still binding, and it must be observed. The second conclusion that can be drawn is this. The Sabbath is still binding but it's to be observed on Sunday. The Sabbath is still binding, the command is still binding, but the day is just shifted to Sunday. That is one conclusion that can be drawn. The English and Scottish Puritans drew that conclusion. J.C. Ryle is an Anglican bishop 
who drew that conclusion. Today, one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, draws that conclusion. He comes from an Irish uh, heritage that roots back to some of that. There are other faithful believers who hold that still today. In fact, it was sort of a prevailing view, even in Southern Baptist life, that I grew up in. There's a, a third conclusion that can be drawn, and that's this, that the Sabbath is no longer binding. The Sabbath command in the, the Ten Commandments is no longer a binding command on New Testament Christians. The Lord's Day is a completely separate event that is altogether different from Sabbath observation. John Calvin, D.A. Carson, John MacArthur, others draw that conclusion. It is a conclusion that I've drawn from the, from the evidence as well. Tim Challey's an evangelical blogger, uh, puts out there a fourth view. He calls it the oblivious view. And the oblivious view just basically is this. I just know I'm supposed to go to church on Sunday. I don't have any idea why or how that relates to the Old Testament or the Sabbath. So maybe that's your view this morning. Maybe you just come to church on Sunday and you have no idea where all of this relates to those things. Well, by the end of our time together this morning, you should have some sense for how all this relates. If that's the case, then we'll praise the Lord for that. So those are what we're, that's what we're coming at. And so you need to decide, what is the, what is the evidence presented this morning? Where does, it, where does it drive you? And where does the Spirit of God convict your heart on this matter? Uh, and so let's start in the Old Testament. We need to just sort of just go back to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to just make our way left to right in the Bible, if you will, and sort of track this out. We first come across the issue of the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is the account of creation. And in Genesis 2, we're given the story of how God created the heavens and the earth. And we're told in verse 2 of Genesis 2 that on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, it's an interesting passage. The word Sabbath isn't in there. Uh, what we're told here is that God has been working for six days, and in six days, he's created everything that there is, and on the seventh day, he rests from that work of creation. So he made everything that there was to make. He made it in six days. It is my conviction that those are literal 24-hour days. There's nothing in the text that indicates anything other than that. And so any other meaning to the word day has to be sort of imported into the text. It doesn't come out of the text. So if you have a different conclusion on that, then that's between you and the Lord. But just understand, nothing in the text indicates to us that it's anything other than a literal day. And so the idea here is six days God creates and on day seven, the seventh day, after creating man, he says his creation is good and he rests from the work of his creation. What does that mean? Well, it simply means he stopped working. He worked for six days and then he stopped. He stopped creating. The work that he was doing came to an end and he rested. Was he worn out? Did he need a vacation? Was he tired from all the hard work of creating people and planets and cows and grass? The answer to that is no. God doesn't get weary. God never needs a vacation. His work is not hard and exhausting to him. The text does not simply tell us why he rested. It doesn't tell us why. It just simply states that he did. Within that word rest is a word that means satisfied to. So it carries that idea, the sense that God was satisfied with his creation. There was nothing left to create. And so he simply stopped the creation and was satisfied in what he made. The most we can say about this is that Sabbath rest here, or the seventh day rest here, 
was something to do with us. It had nothing to do with a need in him. That's all we can conclude here from the text. And we're told God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Well, what does it mean that he blessed the seventh day and he made it holy? To make something holy just simply means, holy means separate. He, he set this day apart from the other six. He took the seventh day and he set it apart from the other six. It was different than the other six. He worked on sixth and the seventh day was set apart. He doesn't work. He rests. And so God set apart a day, one day out of seven to not work. Now notice here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and really the remainder of Genesis chapter 2, there is no instruction for Adam and Eve to observe that Sabbath. He doesn't say that God rested on the seventh day. Now Adam and Eve, the command to you is, you go and do likewise. You go rest on the seventh day also. There's no command to Adam and Eve to observe the seventh. There's just the statement that this is what God did. Adam and Eve do have commands. They're told to go be fruitful and multiply. And all God's people said, Amen. They're told to exercise dominion over creation. That's something they're supposed to do. They're told to work the garden and to keep the garden that God's plant put them in. But that's the only instructions they're given as far as things they're to do. So the most we can say from Genesis chapter 2 is this. God worked on six days and he rested on one day. That one day that he rested was set apart, consecrated, made holy, from the other six. And the fact that that happened, that God rested on one day out of seven, was a blessed thing by God. So that's all we can conclude from Genesis chapter 2 and 4. So at least we have a template here, right? Work six days, rest on day seven. So we fast forward a little bit. What happens next? Adam and Eve, we, we don't have any indication that they observed any sort of a, a seventh day rest. What do, we, what do we find from there as we make our way left to right in our Bible? What happens when we go uh, beyond the fall in the garden and we start moving historically through the, the, the early parts of the narrative of the Old Testament? When we come across people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the narratives surrounding the, the early patriarchs of the church. What do we see when we read all about them? Well, what we see is that there's no indication that any of them observed any sort of a Sabbath. There's no indication that any of them took a seventh day rest. Nowhere in any of those narratives do we see that. In fact, Sabbath isn't mentioned, this idea of a rest on the seventh day isn't mentioned again until we get to the time of Moses, which is a, a good three to 400 years later down the road. There's no mention prior to that of anybody observing a Sabbath. The first time we run across it is when we get to Exodus chapter 16, and we have the Israelites having come now out of Egypt, God delivering them by miracle out of Egypt, and, and leading them toward the promised land. Uh, and, and God is feeding them along the way because it's a grueling and painful journey. And so God is miraculously feeding them. How does he do that? Well, he does that by, by creating this miraculous meal of, of, thing, uh, of substance called manna that he rains down from heaven. And what we find in Exodus chapter 16, verse 22 and following, is that we see that God brought manna every day for them to eat, just enough for one day. They were specifically instructed, don't gather more than one day's worth. And, and that was to, to, to give them daily trust in the Lord to provide for their needs. Some people ignored that and did it anyway, and they got manna with worms, which is not good to eat. But what we find in the instruction is God tells them on the sixth day, what are they to do? You're to gather enough for how many days? You're two days. You gather enough manna for two days. 
for two days. Well, why do you do that? He says, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you'll bake and boil what you'll boil, and all that's left over lay aside and keep it till the morning. So here we have the first time we this idea of a Sabbath rest on the seventh day. It's during the wilderness wanderings. There to take enough manna for one day on the on Saturday on Friday. They're to, to get enough for two days because they're not to work on that next day, on that seventh day. Now this is repeated again in Exodus uh, in that same chapter, and then in verse thirty of chapter sixteen, he simply tells us so the people rested on the seventh day. That's what they did. They didn't gather manna. They didn't work. They didn't do anything. They rested. So this grueling trip from Egypt to the promised land was painful. It was hard. It was grueling. It was difficult. They had to rely on God every single day to provide for their needs. And so God gave them a built-in day every week to rest. To rest. To rest their bodies. To rest their souls. To rest their minds. Now again, even here, the only thing that's mentioned about that seventh day is it's a day of rest. There's no mention of worship. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of preaching. It's simply the people rested on the seventh day. They rested. That's all we're told. So you flip a couple more pages over in Exodus, and you get to chapter 20 in Exodus, where we have Moses now on Mount Sinai, and we have God giving him the what we know or commonly call the, the what? The ten yeah, the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, right? And in the mix of that, in the midst of that, you have the, the commandment number four, the fourth commandment, which addresses the Sabbath. It's part of the Mosaic Covenant. And here's what God says in verse 8 of chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and you'll do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God gives Moses a command for his people. And he simply tells them three things. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, just like God kept it holy. It's to be separate, different, consecrated to the Lord, different from all the other days, and you're not to do any work. It applies to you. It applies to your whole family. It applies to anybody who works for you. It applies to people who are traveling in town and visiting with you. And rest, again, is mentioned here as a part of the purpose. So what's the basis for this? Well, he roots it back in creation, and he says, simply, God created in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. That's what you're going to do also. That's what you're going to do also. So if you flip a couple pages more over to Exodus 31 and verse 12 and following, we have the Lord speaking to Moses and the conversation here is again about the Sabbath. And he gives us a little more information, or at least he gives Moses a little more information and he enlightens us a bit too. Because the Lord says to Moses in verse 12 this, he says, you're to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and and you throughout your generations that you may know that I the Lord sanctify you you shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you everyone who profanes it shall be put to death 
Whoever does not, or whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day, that is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. And he repeats here again, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, fascinating here, because it's a very important text. The Lord elaborates on what the Sabbath is and who it is for, what this command in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments is all about. He says two times that this is a sign between him and Israel. It's a sign. It's a symbol. Well, a sign of what? A sign for what? What is it a sign of? He says it's a sign so that you'll know that I sanctify you. Just like God sanctified the seventh day or set it apart from all the other days, I have sanctified you, Israel, my people, from all the other peoples on the earth. Just like the Lord set apart one day from the rest, I have set you apart from all the rest of the peoples on the earth. And so part of the purpose for the Sabbath is it's a sign. Every single time you gather on the Sabbath, it is a weekly reminder that you belong to me, that you're my people, my called out people, that you're not like the Hittites and you're not like the Philistines and you're not like the Jebusites and you're not like any other people on the earth because I have sanctified you, I've set you apart, I've called you to myself. And he says in there, the Sabbath then is a covenant. It's a covenant between God and Israel. So this is a unique thing. The Sabbath observance, the command in the Ten Commandments, is directed directly at Israel, and it is a sign of God's covenant with Israel that he has called them out and sanctified them from among all the peoples of the earth. Now, when we hear the word covenant, little bells start going off in our head because we know in the Old Testament, right, that God made several covenants with Israel. If we don't know that, well, you know that now. There are at least three covenants that are very prominent in the Old Testament between God and his people, Israel, and each one of them, God gives a special sign of that covenant. We could go all the way back to Abraham, and what was the, the Abrahamic covenant? You're my people, and all the things associated with that. There was a sign that you're my people. The sign of this covenant is what? Circumcision. It's circumcision. You move forward, and there's another covenant that God makes with his people. It's the, the, Noahic, the Noahic covenant. God was destroyed the earth, saved, saved Noah and his family and some animals, two by two, right, in the ark, the archiarchy. We sang about it Sunday school, right? What was the sign of that covenant? God gave him a sign. It was a rainbow. Every time you see the rainbow, you'll know my commitment is to never do this again. Not like this. And when we get to the Mosaic Covenant, which is what we're dealing with in Exodus, God giving his law at Mount Sinai to his people, part of the covenant, the sign of that covenant, we're told here in Exodus 31, the sign of that covenant is what? It's Sabbath observance, Sabbath keeping. It's a sign of the covenant. And so that's important. That's a very important piece for us to understand that this is a sign of the covenant. It's uniquely a part of the covenant 
of God with national Israel. It never had any application to any other nation except Israel. There is no indication here that there's some universal application of this Sabbath observance to the broader world. The Philistines, the Hittites, the Moabites are condemned for an awful lot of things that they did in violation of God's moral law, but one thing they're never condemned for is for not keeping the Sabbath. And so that's important. That's important. Flip a few pages over to Deuteronomy chapter 5 in your Bible. And we see some more information that God gives about the reason for the Sabbath and what it is to be for the Israelites. In verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, here is what we find. Here we have a new connection. The, new, the Ten Commandments are repeated in this context. And after repeating it, here's what is said by the Lord. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath is now two purposes for Israel. It's a sign of the covenant. It points back to creation. They're to remember that God made them. He created them. That even though that they've fallen in sin... And, and creation is not like it was in the Garden of Eden when God made them, that they are still a sanctified people that God has called out. But here he says it also signifies something else. It's not just that you're a created and sanctified people, but it signifies that you're a redeemed people. The Sabbath is tied here to looking back at their enslavement to Egypt. And he says that part of the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath day is for you to remember that you used to be slaves in Egypt and the Lord God brought you out of there. That you were slaves that the Lord redeemed out of Egypt. And so you're to observe the Sabbath. So for Old Testament Israelites, they were commanded to observe the Sabbath at risk of your life. And only were you to observe it, you were to remember these things that God had specifically done for Israel, particularly creation and redemption. So what do we summarize all this in the Old Testament? Well, the Sabbath was one day of rest out of seven days. The Sabbath was a sign of God's covenant to Israel. They were set apart. They were set apart by him, and they were set apart for him. The Sabbath was designed to provide them a weekly opportunity to remember creation, that, that God was their creator, and to re remember redemption, that God had, slave, he had saved them, redeemed them out of Egyptian slavery. That's what we get from the Old Testament. Well, what does the New Testament say? What does the New Testament have to say to us about this issue? Well, the issue is addressed in several New Testament passages. But however, uh, the reason that this is debated throughout the history of the Christian church is because there isn't a specific passage that I can point you to that says in this passage, you are no longer obligated in, uh, after, after the resurrection to keep the Sabbath. And there is no passage that says you are obligated to. So our conclusion has to come from interpreting the passages that we do have and sort of piecing the evidence together. So let's try to do that together. What is Jesus' approach to the Sabbath? Do you agree with me that's an important question? What did Jesus think about the Sabbath, and how did he operate in regards to the Sabbath? Well, it's important. A couple of things I point out here. He never outright repudiates the Sabbath, at least in total. He does condemn several things associated with the Sabbath. We've already seen these in Luke. He condemns the religious leaders' man-made rules for the Sabbath, 
They'd added to God's requirements and he condemns that. He blows that off. He blows right through all that and has no problem violating all of those man-made rules. He also condemns the merciless way they enforce the rules. That even a poor man with a withered hand would be kept from being healed out of some contrived commitment to a Sabbath. And he makes clear, really, that there are at least three things that are always permissible on the Sabbath in doing that. Acts of necessity are always permitted on the Sabbath, he he makes clear. Acts of mercy, like healing a man with a withered hand, are always appropriate on the Sabbath. And he also makes the case that acts in service to God are always permissible on the Sabbath. The priests, he he says, they work every Sabbath and they somehow don't violate the Ten Commandments. But when we get to John chapter 5, it's a very fascinating passage. We have a healing there at the pool of Bethesda. Do you remember this story? Jesus walks to the pool of Bethesda, this pool where there was this superstitious belief that, 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 that an angel would stir the water and the first uh, person that could get in the water would be healed of whatever their ailment. So around this pool, there were just it was littered with, with invalids, people who were sick and diseased in various ways, just waiting for the water to be stirred, hoping they could be the first one in. And so Jesus comes into that, that, that location, and he walks up to a man who's lame, who obviously will never be the first person in the water because there are faster sick people than him that can get in the water before he can. And he says, I don't have anybody to help me get in the water. And Jesus simply asks him, do you want to be healed? And he says, yes, I want to be healed. And Jesus simply says to him, get up, take up your mat, and do what? walk. Bizarre thing to say to a lame man who's never walked. And the man gets up, he takes up his mat, and he walks. That's remarkable. A remarkable thing. Remarkable thing. The problem with it is he did it on the Sabbath. And it's not a violation of the rules to walk on the Sabbath, but it is to pick up your mat and carry it. So Jesus here commands this man to violate the Sabbath rules. And then he says something in verse 16 and 17 that's really remarkable. He says, and this was why, this is what John tells us, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, if you remember, after creating the world in six days, God did what on the seventh day? He rested, which meant he stopped doing what? Working. He stopped working, stopped creating. But here Jesus says, on a Sabbath day, to the Pharisees who were devoted to the Sabbath, my father is working until right now. And I'm working right now. That must have been devastating for them to hear. What do you mean God's work, God's violating the Sabbath? He's working on the Sabbath and you're working on the Sabbath? He's clearly not resting on this Sabbath. He's working, Jesus says. What's he working on? Well, in Genesis, he paused. He rested from the work of creation. Here, he's actually doing the work of redemption. He's working out his plan of redemption, and he's doing it on the Sabbath. That's noteworthy. We find also in the New Testament this, that salvation comes to both Jews and Gentiles after the death and resurrection of Jesus based on not the Abrahamic covenant, not based on the Mosaic covenant, but based on what the Bible identifies as the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 and following prophesies this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant is he talking about there? Moses coming out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. In other words, the law, like the Ten Commandments, won't be something external that you're trying to keep. I'm going to write it inside of them, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. Well, Jeremiah prophesied that. When we get to the New Testament and we get to Luke 22, we see the New Testament explaining that in Christ, life in his death and in his resurrection, we have the inauguration of that new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied. In fact, in Luke 22, verse 20, this is what Jesus says. This is around the Passover meal where he institutes the Lord's Supper. He passes the cup, and after they had eaten, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the what? It's, it is the new covenant in my blood. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross ratifies the new covenant. It puts an end to the old covenant, to the Mosaic covenant, and it inaugurates the new covenant under which people are saved from that time forward. The writer of Hebrews speaks extensively to this. We don't have time this morning to go very far with it, but look at Hebrews 9.15. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore he, being Christ, is the mediator of what? Of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the substance of all the things pointed to by the Old Testament. Covenants. He's the mediator of a new covenant. There's no need for a temple and there's no need for priests to be mediators between people and God because Jesus Christ himself is now what? He's the mediator between God and men. You don't need to go to a priest. You don't need to go to a temple. Christ is God in flesh. He is our one mediator. You don't need the ceremonial law, and you don't need to bring your animals to be slaughtered and sacrificed anymore. Why? Because Christ in his own flesh is the Lamb of God slain once for all for the sins of the world. He's the inaugurator of the new covenant. There's no need for a ceremonial law. There's no need for sacrifices. That whole entire system, the writer of Hebrews is claiming, comes to an end in Christ. It all comes down, and it all is rendered unnecessary because Christ is our new mediator. He is the Lamb of God. He replaces all of what that pointed to. In fact, it was all a foreshadowing of him. By his death, burial, and resurrection, the new covenant is established. Romans chapter 14. Go there with me, if you will. I keep hearing something behind me, and I keep thinking like somebody's sneaking up on me, and that's why I keep looking but it looks like water is dripping from the ceiling. So that's all that it is. So if you see me like looking over my shoulder, it's not something weird going on up here. It's just I keep hearing something right behind me. Look at uh, Romans 14, verse 5. This is Paul writing to the church at Rome. Here's what he says. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Well, that's relevant to the Sabbath, isn't it? 
because it's the early church now. You've got a Christian church established with both Jews and Gentiles that are, that are being saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus and being, being, being reconciled to God under the new covenant. Now they're gathering together and they're worshiping together and it's gonna come up, right, this issue of the Sabbath. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? Are we supposed to still do this on Saturdays? And you've got the Gentiles saying, hey, we've never done that. Do we need to do that to be Christians? And it becomes a dispute in the church. And so we have a church in Rome that's in conflict over two issues. One is eating. There are some people who are arguing that we should hold to Old Testament dietary laws and primarily be vegetarians in order to be Christians. And there are other people who are saying, nonsense, I like my pork. Everything is declared clean by the Lord, and it's all fair game to eat. We're not bound by those laws anymore. Christ has freed us from all of that. And so there's a dispute in the church and people are arguing and they're, they're, they're doing all the things that people in our culture do today over just about anything and everything. And there's a second conflict. It's over holy days, festivals, new moons, Sabbath observances. Some people are saying, hey, we need to still observe the Sabbath. The, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments are still binding. And even though we become Christians under the blood of Jesus, we still need to observe the Sabbath as a separate day. It's a, a, a unique day. It's better than the others. And so Paul has to set out to address this in the Roman church. And so what's his solution? Well, here's his solution. If you were to, you can read in Romans 14 for yourself. His solution is this. You need to own your own convictions and you need to settle it in your own mind. You need to settle it for yourself. Determine for yourself what you're supposed to do. Between you and the Lord, settle your conviction. But whichever you do, do it to honor the Lord. And furthermore, don't argue about it. Right? Don't argue about it. If Jewish believers feel obligated to continue to observe the Sabbath, that's okay. Just don't impose that obligation on everybody else and tell them that they're pagans and that they're rebels for disobedience and sin because they're not doing what you do. And if you're a Gentile believer and you don't feel obligated to do it, then that's fine too. Don't do it. But don't try to impose your, your conviction on everybody else and tell them they're a bunch of pagan rebels who hate God because they don't do what you do. Now that's remarkable. It's remarkable because if keeping the Sabbath was part of God's universal moral command, there's no way Paul could have said that. There's no way Paul could have said to the church, if Sabbath keeping was to be a universal moral command of God, oh, do it if you want to, don't do it if you don't. Because that's not what the rule was. The rule was do it or you get killed. He would never say that with the other Ten Commandments, right? You shall not steal. Well, if you're talking about that, some of you think you ought to steal, some of you think you ought to not steal. If you think you should steal, go about it. Just don't tell everybody else not to. Would he ever do that? That would make no sense. No, because not stealing is a part of God's universal moral law. Don't lust after your neighbor's wife. Well, some of you think your neighbor's wife is better than yours, so if you like that, go for it. Just don't you know, tell everybody else they need to lust after their neighbor's wife. And if you don't think that's good, then, you know, that's okay. Don't do it. Would he ever say that about that? No, because that's part of God's moral universal law. But in regards to Sabbath keeping, he says, each one of you esteems one day is better than the other, while another says all days are alike. In verse 19, he says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's hard for me to understand how Paul could address that issue that way if it was a universal part of God's moral law. 
in Colossians chapter 2, very similar context. Here's what we have. Paul writing to the Colossian church, he says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Similar context, the church is arguing about the, uh, food and drinks and special days, and they're judging each other based on these things. And, and it's important here to note how he groups the special days. He groups uh, festivals and new moons and Sabbaths all together. Basically, those, and when you add the, the food and drink issue, he's basically taking all of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament and grouping it all together and saying, look, don't pass judgment on each other about these things. All of these things are really just a shadow to begin with. A shadow that points to the substance, which is what? Or whom? It's Christ. You understand the difference between a shadow and a substance, right? If there was a light shining straight in front of me, there'd be a shadow on the ground. The shadow is simply a reflection that points to me, but it's not me. I'm the substance. And he's saying here, the dietary laws, all of these ceremonial things that were a part of the sacrifices in the temple and all of that, and he includes with that Sabbaths. He said all of that was really, at the end of the day, a shadow that points us to the substance of Christ. Why would you be consumed with the shadow when you have the substance? There's no need. There's no need. You don't need a temple because the Spirit of Christ dwells within your body. You don't need circumcision, and you don't need to, to observe the Sabbath to identify yourself with God. How do New Testament Christians identify publicly with their God? They don't get circumcised for it. They don't observe the Sabbaths to do it. They make a public proclamation of their faith by baptism, and they gather together and share the Lord's Supper. They break bread around the Lord's table and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You say, well, then what about Sunday? What about Sunday? Well, that's the Lord's day. That's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath has always been Saturday. The Sabbath has always been the seventh day. The Lord's day is Sunday, which is the first day. Or if you read some old writers, they call it the eighth day. I don't know why. You have to ask them. So what about the Lord's Day? Well, what do we, where, where does this come up in the Bible? Well, it comes up because with the early Christians, particularly the Gentiles, had no connection to the Mosaic Covenant at all, right? If you were a Gentile believer in the New Testament, you had no connection to that. You're not an Israelite. So none of that really had any meaning to you. And, and so the Mosaic Covenant, including the Sabbaths, was always a, a covenant between God and Israel and had no connection uh, the, the, these Gentile believers had no connection to being redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, which was part of the symbolism of the Sabbath, so that it never had any, any real meaning to them. They had placed their faith in Jesus, and they were saved under the new covenant. So when they gathered, it was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that they celebrated. It was a different redemption. It wasn't a temporal redemption out of slavery in Egypt. It was the eternal redemption from their sin that was signified by the resurrection of Christ from the grave, which happened on the first day of the week. 
And so that was the thing that meant the most to them. That was the thing that, that spoke to them about their faith. It was the thing that anchored it. It was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and in particular, the resurrection, which happens on the first day. And so Sunday becomes the day where they're gathering and they're celebrating, and it's a much more significant day for the early New Testament Christian. Sunday is resurrection day. Sunday was the day on which many of Christ's post-resurrection appearances happen. Pentecost takes place on what day? A Sunday. The Great Commission is given on what day? It's given on a Sunday. A lot of very significant events in the early church took place on Sunday. And so the early church gathered and celebrated the redemption in Christ on that day. Acts 20, on the first day of the week, they were gathered to break bread. You read Acts chapter 20. You think this sermon is long. Read Acts chapter 20. You're going to feel great about it. Paul preaches so long well into the night that a man falls asleep and falls out the window and dies. I've never killed anybody with a sermon, so some may have been painful, but nobody's died to my knowledge. Thankful to Eutychus, Paul healed him. But we find there that they're gathered on the first day of the week, on Sunday, not on a Sabbath, Saturday. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul tells the Corinthian church on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. That is to give an offering to be collected when I come. So the point is Jewish believers are being persecuted. We need to collect an offering to help them out. You should do it when you gather on the first day of the week. When you gather on the Lord's day, take up a collection. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John is writing. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard a loud voice like a trumpet. It's the first mention of the Lord's day. It's the first mention. It's written around AD 96. But by that point, by AD 96, Sunday is identified as the Lord's day. And it's the accepted day in which Christians are already gathering and worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping, they're collecting offerings, they're teaching, and they're sharing the Lord's supper together. Nowhere in any of those passages that we just read, incidentally, which are the only New Testament passages that really relate to this issue, is the Lord's Day called a day of rest, like the Sabbath was in the Old Testament. I just point that out because it's noteworthy. Now, time is up, so I won't trek you through the early church. I do want to put it all together, though, for you at the end here. Let me just say this. For the first seven to eight centuries of the church, it was universally held that New Testament believers gathered and worshiped on the Lord's Day. They did not observe the Sabbath. It shows up around the 800s with some folks who were advocating for a Christian version of the Sabbath. And then it shows up in the Reformation uh, among the English and the Scottish uh, reformers as well. But almost universally in this first uh, seven to eight centuries, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not heard of. So you can search that out for yourself. So what do you put this all together? Let's go back to our initial questions. Based on what we've seen, is the fourth commandment still binding on believers today? My answer to that question is no. It absolutely is not. It is not binding on us today. We worship on the Lord's day. We honor the Lord on the Lord's day. We do not honor the Sabbath. And you don't get killed if you don't come. You should say amen to that. You'd all be dead. Um, No. Sabbath was a shadow. Christ is the substance. Sabbaths, new moons, dietary laws, sacrifices, all the ceremonial peace there came to an end in Christ. 
That's my firm conviction. Are we still required biblically to observe the Sabbath? No. If not, how do we then, then, then what about this? Do Christians observe the Sabbath on Sunday? My answer to that question is absolutely no. We do not observe the Sabbath on Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's Day. It is an altogether different thing. It honors the Lord. It is not some attempt to keep the Old Testament Sabbath. Now, I've read extensively in recent weeks those who argue that it is, and it makes no sense to me. I don't see how you can argue for an enduring obligation to hold and keep the Old Testament Sabbath without killing people and without sacrificing animals. How can you willy-nilly say, well, we're going to be only obligated to parts of it and pieces of it, and we're going to shift it arbitrarily to Sunday, but it's still the Sabbath. I don't think the text bears any of that out. So I do not believe it's a, a, a Christian replacement uh, that Sunday is a Christian replacement for observance of the Old Testament Sabbath. Do the Old Testament Sabbath rules apply to Christians on Sunday? No, they do not. No, they do not. It's interesting, though, because when I grew up here in the United States of America, we had something here in, in South Carolina called Blue Laws. Do you remember the Blue Laws? I don't know why they were called Blue Laws as opposed to Red Laws or Green Laws, but somebody who's a legal person could tell me that probably, but it just simply meant, in my mind, you couldn't go a lot of places on Sunday because they were closed, and you couldn't buy alcohol on Sunday because you couldn't sell it on Sunday. And I think all of that was really sort of something that emanated from a cultural piece of observing Sunday as some sort of a Sabbath where you rest and you don't go places and do things and eat and drink things. That's all gone by the wayside uh, at this point in our culture for sure. But no, we, we don't observe the Sabbath. So what are the principles that apply here? Let me just give these to you. They're all relatively obvious. I think these are clear principles from the text we looked at today. I think we can say, at least from Genesis 2, that man was not made to work nonstop. You're not made to work and be consumed by work. There is at least that principle in Genesis 2, right? God worked six days and he, and he rested. Not because he needed to, but he was giving us something of substance that we need to observe that our bodies, our minds, our souls need rest. Is that an obligation to do it on a particular day? I don't believe so. It wasn't for Adam and Eve. It wasn't for the early patriarchs. It wasn't for anyone up until Moses and the Israelites. But it does at least give us a principle that we are not to grind ourselves into dust by our work, that we're to give time to rest for body, soul, and mind. If you're not doing that, and it's hard to do in our culture, in our culture where we're very busy, where information is flowing at us nonstop all the time, it's very difficult to unplug from all of that and to give the soul and the mind and the body rest. But it's good for you, and it's good for me, and we need to do that. We're not made to work nonstop. Secondly, we don't gather on Sundays out of obligation to the Old Testament law. I think we can conclude that. We're freed by Christ from the law, particularly the ceremonial law. We do gather on Sundays for several reasons. We do it to pray, we do it to worship, we do it to study, we do it to fellowship, and we do it to observe the Lord's Supper. All of that we have templates for in the New Testament that are clear. We do it also to remember our Creator. We do it also to remember our Redeemer. We just don't, rem we don't remember our redemption in terms of Egypt and slavery. We remember our redemption in terms of sin and freedom from it. We need to gather for that and to do that because we're forgetful people. And if we don't build that into our lives, we will forget it. You will forget it, and I will forget it. And weeks and months and years will go by. And we also need to gather to minister our gifts in the body. And I just say finally this, church is essential. 
I think that's clear from the New Testament. I like that phrase. It's been bandied about a lot. In fact, Grace Community Church just won a a massive lawsuit against the, the state of California and Los Angeles County to the tune of about $800,000 based on their COVID, their draconian COVID policies of trying to say church wasn't essential, but the local liquor store was, and Walmart was. Not only in a culture is church essential, but for the church, church is essential. And I mean by that, gathered worship is essential. Hebrews 10 tells us that we're not to neglect gathering together as is the habit of some. In fact, in Hebrews it says, we're to do that all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're called by God to gather as God's people and to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, to study his word, to pray together, to minister to one another, to serve one another, to practice all the one another's, to worship. And we should do that not because of some external law that we're trying to keep in order to maintain some level of holiness before God, but we ought to do it because it is the the thrill of our heart to gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day to celebrate what Christ has done for us. That's why we gather. Not to keep some stupid law that somebody's put on us, but because our hearts are are aching throughout the week as we're working and as we're doing the things we do all throughout the week to get back together with God's people and to sing and to pray and to study God's word. And that hunger should happen all the more the closer we get to the end. Sadly, it's becoming less and less a commitment of even God's people. And with technology, people are even content today just to hang out at the house in their pajamas and tune in for an hour and go about their business. If you've got COVID, you're perfectly legit in doing that. We thank you that you're able to do that. But when you're healthy and you're good, that's a cop-out doesn't say much about your love for Christ and it doesn't say much about how much you value the redemption that Christ brings if there's not a longing to be with his people and to worship him as a regular rhythm of your life not just privately but with his people together studying and praying singing celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptism and baby dedications So we don't gather to keep some, some, old, some old law that somebody's put on us from the Mosaic Covenant. We gather because we love Christ and we love his people. And our hearts are overflowing with gratitude that he would redeem sinners like us. And our heart can't wait week after week to express that to him in the company of his people. And so I just ask you, literally as we end this really long sermon, that's been largely academic. So examine your own heart and ask the question, is that the longing of your heart? Is that really what you want in a week is to be with God's people and to worship and to give thanks to God, to celebrate your redemption? Do you long for that? Is it a priority in your life? Or would you just as soon be doing something else? I would say to you, if that's not a legitimate longing of your heart, if it's not a legitimate commitment enough in your life to make it a part of the regular rhythm of your life, then something's wrong. Something is wrong. And you need to honestly go before the Lord and ask the Lord, what's wrong? What's wrong? Why do I not love you like I should? Why do I not desire to be with God's people? Why does worship not thrill me? not because you need to keep a law, but because it's an indication that there's something wrong in the heart. 
And it's something in which we need to repent and seek forgiveness and ask the Spirit of God to restore. So if that's you this morning, that's the way you respond. You don't respond by me telling you, you ought to come to church because I'm taking role and I'm going to send you a letter if you don't because that's the rule. It's not how it works. You respond because you love Christ and you love his people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the redemption we have in you, purchased by your blood through your death, burial, and resurrection. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we've been reconciled to our Heavenly Father because you've paid the price in full. You are indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You've wiped away our sins. You've cast them as far as the east is from the west. You've buried them in the depths of the ocean. And we'll never stand accountable for those sins again because of what you've done for us. And Lord, our hearts are thrilled with that. We can't understand that kind of love. We can't understand why you would do that for people like us who've strayed in a thousand ways and who regularly fall short of your glory. But we long to live in the freedom that comes through your death and resurrection and your saving work in our lives. And so, Lord, we confess we're not bound by external laws. You've written your law in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. You indwell us. And we're driven not by rules, but by love for you and for your people. And so, Lord, as we think about Sabbaths and we think about rules and we look at all these passages this morning, I pray that, that really where it would all land in our lives is to ask the question, do we long to worship you? Do we long to be with your people? Is that a highlight in the rhythm of our life? And if not, Lord, draw us to confession and repentance this morning and help us to rectify that. By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.